seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The former nurse, Lucy Letby, has been found guilty of murdering seven babies and attempting to kill six others at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Between June 2015 and June 2016, babies who seemed to be doing reasonably well would suddenly collapse. Lucy Letby was the common factor. The verdicts make the 33-year-old Britain's most prolific baby killer. Lucy Letby, I sentence you to imprisonment for life. This was a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It's now a podcast about one of the worst serial killers in modern times. At 12.52pm on Friday, August the 18th, 2023, we brought you the news that a neonatal nurse was guilty of killing babies in her care. After a trial lasting for over 10 months and more than 110 hours of painstaking deliberation, the jury decided that Lucy Letby murdered seven babies at the Countess of Chester Hospital and she tried to kill six more. She was cleared of two further charges of attempted murder and the jury could not reach verdicts on six further allegations. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for the Mail. I've been in court throughout and have reported on the case as it developed. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week we've examined what's happened and brought you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. So on Friday, Liz, we learned that Lucy Letby is trying to appeal against her convictions. Yeah, anyone convicted in a Crown Court has 28 days to lodge an application for permission to appeal. And Friday marked 28 days after the jury returned their verdicts on August the 18th. So quite late on Friday afternoon, the news came through that her defence team had submitted the initial paperwork to the Court of Appeal. So we managed to grab a chat with Barrister Mary Pryor Casey on exactly what that means and what the appeals process entails. We've also managed to interview Dr Dowie Evans, who you'll remember gave evidence repeatedly in the trial. He was the prosecution's main expert witness. 
He tells us why he believes Lucy Letby killed and harmed more babies in her care. Welcome to episode 63, The Expert Witness. So just before we get into our conversation with Dr Evans, we did want to reflect, Liz, on the fact on Friday afternoon, as we just said, quite late, after four o'clock, Lucy Letby did lodge an application to appeal against her convictions. We thought it would be really useful to get some more information on what that entails, what that looks like, what happens now with that process. So we were really glad that Mary Pryor, Casey, managed to find some time over the weekend to chat to us just about how that's all going to work going forward. Thanks so much, Mary. And could you just give us a kind of overview of how you go about, a defendant goes about appealing? And you can't just appeal your conviction if you don't agree with what the jury's conclusion is in the trial, can you? Absolutely not, Liz. The rules are very, very strict about the grounds upon which you can appeal against your conviction. The first one, which is often not known, is that there are rare occasions when a judge who's uh, presided over a trial has a major concern about a case, either about an issue of law, which is not clear, or about something that's happened. And in those circumstances, the judge can refer the case himself to the Court of Appeal for a consideration as to whether or not the conviction is safe. There are very limited grounds by which a defendant can appeal their conviction. Simply that they don't like the conviction, a protestation of innocence, unhappiness with the jury's verdict. None of those things are grounds to appeal a conviction. The only ground upon which you can appeal a conviction is that the conviction is unsafe because of a misdirection of law or fresh evidence, some major difficulty with representation or a fundamental failure to disclose. Those are the most frequent grounds of appeal against conviction. So just elaborate a little bit on those. So fundamental failure to disclose, disclose evidence? Sometimes disclose evidence sometimes disclose a particular fact that is known about something which might have made someone look in a different direction. Interestingly, Mary, actually, that that reminds me, I'm sure it wasn't exactly this ground, but that reminds me a little bit of the Andrew Malkinson case, that there was evidence of something else that might be at play that wasn't disclosed. And that was indeed deemed to be, in the end, a miscarriage of justice. Yes, Caroline, that's exactly the sort of example where someone will probably be given leave to appeal, where there's been a material failure to disclose information which would have assisted a defendant in the preparation of their case. Mm. So I'm just going to ask you about that process. So the first stage, a defendant has 28 days from the date of conviction, which was Friday, which is why the application for leave to appeal was lodged with the Court of Appeal at about four o'clock on Friday. But just explain this application for leave to appeal. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will get an appeal hearing to appeal your conviction, does it? Absolutely not, no. 
the statistics for the Court of Appeal are available publicly. They can be looked up if you want to look them up. But you will see if you look them up that there are a large number of documents, applications they receive for permission to appeal, and they don't grant all that many of them. The process is very simple. The barrister who represented a defendant at trial has to write advice on appeal. And that advice must contain the legal grounds upon which the barrister thinks the Court of Appeal should intervene in this case, should allow permission. Oh, that's interesting because that's what I wasn't clear about. So Ben Myers, Lucy Letby's KC, will have had to have put the grounds that he thinks that she has a case to try and appeal this conviction already. That will have been lodged. Yes. Because obviously we don't know what they are and there's no duty to disclose those to the media or and I and is this right we will only get to find out what those grounds are if she is granted leave to appeal and there's a hearing scheduled yes the position is that the solicitors for Miss Letby in this particular case Mm -hmm. will fill in a form it will be accompanied by an advice from counsel the grounds of appeal will become plain if the appeal is allowed so if leave is refused then you don't get to hear about it. In terms of what happens next? Once the application is lodged with the court, the next stage is that the prosecution have to respond to that application in writing. They're normally given about the same length of time as the defence are, so 28 days. Once that document has been received, obviously that's provided to the defence. Quite often they respond to that document again. Then the matter will go before the judge. Ordinarily, if I were lodging an application to appeal today, I would expect that to be listed in court in about six months. But I suspect where the case is so notable as this one is, and the desire will be for this matter to be resolved as quickly as possible, it may be sooner than that. In terms of, Mary, the public inquiry, does this delay that from taking place now, potentially? Well, that will be a decision for the inquiry themselves, but it is possible. Of course, you can also appeal her sentence. Now, just explain to us, could you, what happens if, say, say the judge decides, no, the conviction's safe, I'm not going to grant you leave to appeal. Is there anywhere else she can go? Yes, the first option would be to go to the Court of Appeal in person and ask the Court of Appeal as a whole to consider whether or not there should be an appeal. So if you get a document from the single judge which says, I don't agree that there are grounds to appeal here and I don't give you permission, you can, as an advocate, go to the Court of Appeal unfunded. So you go without being paid. And you will then say to the Court of Appeal, I would like to argue that there should be permission for an appeal to take place in this particular case. And then if that fails, there is one other option, isn't there? The Criminal Cases Review Commission. There is. That's an independent body, albeit it is funded by the government. It's reviewed by a member of the commission, generally a solicitor or a barrister. 
and that person either says that it is something that should be considered or not. I've done a couple of um, CCRC cases and they, I mean, they take years. This is not a quick process, is it? It cannot be because, again, there are limited members of the team. Often people are representing themselves at that stage and inquiries take a long time to conduct. But it is a safeguard that's in place for those who do not receive the possibility of appealing to the Court of Appeal Mm. directly. Thank you, Mary. It's really, really interesting. You're welcome. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So for the main interview for this episode, Caroline, we actually took a trip to Wales and drove down to see one of the key figures involved in the trial. So we're here, Liz, in Carmarthen, aren't we? We're in Wales's oldest town, going back to Roman times, oh, called Maridunum in those days, and um, it's my hometown. Those lovely Welsh tones, Liz, are from Dr Dowie Evans, who we heard from a lot in the trial. We've driven overnight here to chat to him about, I suppose, what next? You were a key witness in this case, you were the expert witness for the prosecution. We are going to jump forward, but can we jump back as well? What? was the stage when you first got involved and who called you was it letter email phone call what what happened how long ago take us back to to that moment goes back to 2017 and by that time i'd prepared probably a couple of dozen reports for police authorities mainly in england uh, via the nca the national crime agency so i read in the papers that there was concern about an increasing number of deaths of babies in a hospital in the northwest of England. And I was in correspondence with the NCA on a totally unrelated case. And I added to this email, oh, by the way, I've read about this issue. It sounds my kind of case. So the NCA got in touch with me and I said, look, if, if it helps, tell Chester police 
that I'd be quite happy to talk to them. So they got in touch with me. And so one sunny day in July 2017, I left Carmarthen, drove up to Chester. At the time, there was no mention of any suspect. There was certainly no mention of Lucy Letby. And there was certainly no mention even of someone saying, look, I am concerned, I have seen somebody doing something that is worrying or concerning. So both the police and I were working on a blank sheet. And we've interviewed the SIO, Paul Hughes, and he said, you know, at that early stage, they were all looking to see whether a crime had been committed, not investigating a crime per se, and were hoping that the experts, so you essentially, would review the notes and go, oh no, that's this explains why this baby died. That's right. What I said to the police is, if you have a suspect, I don't want to know. And I think what was crucial, I think, in our investigation was that I told the police, look, send me the notes of every baby who's died, send me the notes of every baby who's collapsed or deteriorated between early 2015 and July 2016, emphasising not just the suspicious ones or the ones that could not be explained. I wanted to see all of them. So I looked at 32 cases, and in a number of cases it was quite easy to rule out or explain why the baby had died or why the baby uh, had collapsed. It was usually due to complications of prematurity or issues involving significant congenital problems or infection or hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. And these are the common factors in causing death or disability in a baby on a neonatal unit. So having ruled out a number of cases, I ended up with 15 cases where the collapse and or death could not be explained on the basis of some natural cause. And in those cases, not only uh, you could not explain them in the usual way, it was clear that these babies had been subject to some kind of harm, to injury. There were uh, several babies who'd sustained physical trauma to the throat to the mouth sufficient to cause bleeding virtually unheard of mm-hmm. two of the babies at post-mortem uh, were found to have trauma to the liver that our pathologist described as being so serious in an older person the sort of thing you'd find in a road traffic accident there was another group of babies who'd very obviously had been injected with milk or milk and air directly into their stomachs to the extent that the stomach had blown up. And of course, if the stomach uh, is inflated, this interferes with breathing because the diaphragm, which is the muscle that regulates your breathing, cannot move up and down. And this was visible on numerous x-rays, where you saw x-rays I'd never seen before or since, where the stomach was a huge great bubble in the middle of the abdomen. And also there was a load of air in the intestines as well. So that was the other group. That sort of inflation of of their tummies, you've only ever seen that before where there's a blockage. So you've never seen that before related to something where there's not a blockage. So there's no other reason that's happening. So I thought, now, there are some uh, procedures where oxygen is delivered to premature babies with breathing difficulties via a system of tubes. 
and that can lead to air getting into the stomach or more air getting into the stomach. But this is the most commonly used treatment for breathing difficulties in premature babies worldwide. And it rarely causes pressure because if you do get a bit of extra air in the stomach, the fact that you have a tube from the outside into the stomach would release that air. So it's not a, a, a factor that causes deterioration. And then the third group of babies, and the most concerning of all, were babies who'd suddenly collapsed, having been quite stable, you know, requiring a little bit of oxygen maybe, but nice and stable, normal heart rate, normal oxygen levels, and then suddenly deteriorating. Now, babies who become unwell don't suddenly deteriorate. They will show markers that any nurse or doctor would know to look out for, but the number of babies just collapsed. And even more concerning, resuscitation failed to save them and they died. A couple of them survived. I've no idea how. It's an incredible achievement on the part of the team. Well, baby M was very close to death. Yes. Yeah. It almost um, given up to him and something uh, picked up. And of course, once you get the heart rate responding, then of course he, he recovered. Now, there was one baby who screamed and then cried for 30 minutes. Mm. And whilst I'd never be able to prove it, I think the bubble went into the coronary artery, into the blood vessel of the heart, giving the poor babe you know, a heart attack, you know, which is extremely painful. Oh Another baby was found to have air bubble in the brain. So the air would have gone from the aorta to the coronary artery in one case or to the uh, arteries supplying the brain in another case. But in more cases, because babies are managed lying on their back, mm -hmm. the highest bit of the baby is the abdomen. Yeah. Therefore, the air would get into the blood vessels supplying the skin. And this would explain this weird discoloration the clinical team would have never seen this before or since and they didn't realise the significance of yeah. what they were seeing. Have you ever seen that before? No, no. In, in no. all your years? Nurses are so methodical, so meticulous in ensuring that you do not get air into syringes. It's second nature. And if you've got a line, they flush the line. You flush the line yeah. and the IV line is put through a machine that not only regulates the rate of fluid, but also has a, a little sensor. So if any air is gets into the line, the uh, bit of equipment stops. So the reason these symptoms, signs and symptoms, if you like, were not recognised for what they were, was because it's the one of the key things medics try and avoid. Yeah. That's what we heard in the case, wasn't it? You know, the defence made great play of, well, you know, there's no such thing as this air embolus and this rash, and you, you can't say that, that it even exists. The point you made is it doesn't exist because it's unethical, completely unethical for anyone to ever experiment on any patient and put air into the circulation, let alone a premature baby, which is why there was talk of that one journal. We all quoted that journal, and I must have read that journal, you know, years ago. It must have settled in that sponge of a brain that I have somehow or <laughs> other. Um, 
because from the very first collapse, this is baby A, I looked at the records and in 2017, my report said this baby's collapsed as a result of air injected into its circulation. The other thing I, I said right at the beginning, I said I will identify any cases, i.e. the 15 cases, whose collapse or death I cannot explain as a result of natural causes. And what you need to do if you suspect that this is inflicted harm, you need to look at the nursing rotor and the medical rotor for that particular shift. Because if a baby is placed in harm's way, that baby will deteriorate more or less straight away. So this is what they did. They had to cross-reference the day and time of the collapse with the nurses yeah. on duty. Even after the first four collapses, so these are babies A, B, C and D, mm -hmm. there was only one nurse on duty mm -hmm. for all four. Yeah. Well, that was the point at which Dr. Brary started to become concerned after the four. They looked at it from the wrong point of view. You see, it, as a doctor, what you have to do is to get the diagnosis. So they'd picked up the fact that something peculiar was going on and it was all seemed to be related to one nurse being on duty. But what they failed to do early on was to work out what yeah. was the cause mm. of the uh, collapse. Why do you think they didn't pick up on that? Would you think that was because it was? it's just almost something so off medic's radar, off clinician's radar in a working unit that they were too consumed with looking for, you know, the usual infection and... You know, and actually the post-mortems didn't, you know, came back natural causes. One of the worst tragedies that affected us in Swansea years ago was a baby who was having a routine surgical operation. And as part of the procedure, the anaesthetist is asked to inject air down a nasogastric tube into the stomach. But he got it wrong and injected air into the circulation and the baby collapsed on the table and died. And it was an awful time for us in Swansea. And I just wonder whether that helped me perversely to think that, good God, this is what's happened. So that term then that you started to write on your reports time after time after time was inflicted harm. Yes. How often have you written that in your career before this case? I've dealt with inflicted harm on a new number of cases where I've prepared reports for the police and where an infant or child has been abused in a domestic situation. Yeah. But I've never said this in relation to a baby or child who's collapsed uh, in hospital. So do you remember a kind of like one particular moment when you were sat writing or reviewing the medical notes, I don't know, you might have been sat in your kitchen or, you know, in, in this room, I've no idea, where you suddenly went, oh dear, you know, this is another one and this is another one. With these cases, it dawned on me after the fourth baby that there was something seriously amiss here. Now, the fourth baby was a full-term baby and, you know, she picked up an infection from her mother mm. They were a bit slow to start on antibiotics, but she was on an antibiotics at around four hours of age. And her response to antibiotics was absolutely fantastic. Within 24 hours, she was breathing more or less on her own. 
She was needing hardly any additional oxygen. She was well on the mend. And suddenly she crushes. And she crushes several times. Now this just doesn't happen. If you have pneumonia um, and treatment is unsuccessful, you will get a deterioration in that baby over a matter of hours. In other words, the oxygen requirements will increase, heart rate may well increase. Um, you will need to give more in the way of uh, support, but they don't just collapse. And in this particular baby, there was evidence of uh, pneumonia on post-mortem. The pathologist described it very nicely as dying with pneumonia, not dying of pneumonia. You know, you're there to do a job. You're a highly qualified doctor doing a job. But how did you feel when you realised what you were dealing with? Towards the end, I found one of the babies. This is the baby who'd cried and screamed. And I think that's the first time it hit me. This baby has been it has been in severe pain. You know, this, this baby's in pain. And... I think that's the first time they got, that's the first case that got to me because, of course, you're only looking at clinical notes. So you don't know the babies, you don't know anything about them. So you just go through it in a well, clinical way, really. So having completed my reports on these 32 cases by November 2017, I sent them all off to Cheshire Police. Um, highlighting the ones I, I thought were concerning and telling them, look, you cross-reference who's on duty yeah. for these babies. And, of course, for, for the 15, there was one nurse on duty for all of these cases. And we're talking about 15, we should probably just say, because the other two are the insulin cases, which make up to the 17 babies involved in the trial. Yes. So what I then said to the police, that um, you shouldn't rely on my opinion alone. You need to get someone else. Mm. So they sent my reports to a consultant neonatologist in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Dr. Martin Ward-Platt. His view was exactly the same as mine. But sadly, he became seriously ill and died. And uh, this is why he uh, was not part of the prosecution team. So that led to the police finding Dr. Sandy Bohin, who had been a neonatologist in Leicester uh, before moving to Guernsey. Her role was to scrutinise my reports, peer review my reports. So she came to the same conclusion as, as I did. Some of these babies were victims of inflicted direct harm, direct trauma. Some uh, were victims of air into the circulation and some had milk or milk and air injected into their stomachs. And of course, several of these babies uh, had sustained multiple assaults and several of them were the victims of having air into the stomach and uh, air into the uh, bloodstream. There's been a lot of questions about why um, Ben Myers didn't call a medical expert for Lucy Letby. We know from court that he they did employ a medical expert to review your reports and to review the cases. So can you tell us why the, you you think he didn't call him or why, you know, it's intriguing? Over the past 10 years, I've probably prepared as many reports for the defence in criminal cases mm -hmm. as I have for the police, for the prosecution. 
And the rules in relation to the defence are totally different. The defence is under no obligation to disclose anything. Now, what they are obliged to do is to get an independent opinion if the prosecution says that the defendant has harmed an individual and that the evidence is based on medical expertise. Mm. So therefore they need to get their own expert or experts. And this is what they did. But once I saw the reports from the two paediatricians, this is in June, I told the prosecution team and Cheshire Police they are not going to call their expert witnesses. So in your opinion, did you feel like those reports were prepared to counter your reports rather than to explain what had happened to the babies? That is correct. And we know, don't we, that their expert sat in the court next door because and that's perfectly legal like you sat there and listened to the evidence as it came out from the medics um at the countess and he did the same and listened to you your evidence as well um so they were fully in the picture and they they could have been called but mr myers for whatever reason decided that he wouldn't call um his expert before we move on to what next? I did want to touch on the insulin because we guess, I suppose, we infer that the jury in making their decisions, we don't know this for sure, but our inference from the way the verdicts came back was that the ins- the two insulin attacks were the ones they decided on first. Now, you were saying earlier on that you hadn't even considered those ones at, at this point because in the end, the, those those insulin records were so vital. The insulin information uh, was very, very important. I described it as a smoking gun. Mm. The first insulin poisoning was the second of twins, baby F. His clinical notes were not part of my initial 32 cases. But thanks to Cheshire Police, who did a pretty good job, and one of the investigating officers... He rang up and said, look, can you look at the notes of the second of the twins? In other words, the twin of baby E. And I wasn't expecting to find much of anything. So I went through the notes and I found this insulin level of over 4,000 with an associated very low level of C-peptide. And it's this ratio between insulin and C-peptide that was key in the trial that you'd seen before so when you saw it in Baby F's notes, it rang alarm bells. You know, it was a eureka moment, quite frankly. I mean, you know, how on earth could the insulin have got in there? Mm-hmm. Uh, but for somebody either injecting the baby directly or injecting insulin into the intravenous fluid bag and therefore the insulin trickling through in that way. So sadly, all that information was in his notes, but for whatever reason, it was missed by the clinicians at Chester. That was an awful tragedy because whatever the cause of the insulin getting into this baby's bloodstream, it would be what we call a never event. In other words, this should never happen. But if they were alert to it, then of course there would have been a review. They would have gone through the notes. They would have found that two nurses were responsible for giving the IV fluids, one of whom was Lucy Letby. 
Stephen Drury was already uh, concerned after the first four cases. So we've now got a fifth case, in fact a sixth, where she's involved. And I think if they had acted on that, I think it would have stopped all the other deaths and collapses. Now the trial's over, you're going back and reviewing more cases. Initially, I looked at 32 cases. There are seven I think we need to look at in more detail. I think these were babies who were unwell, who were ill. But whether they were placed in harm's way as well, I think is something we need to look at. One would never reach the threshold of being able to prove that being placed in harm's way led to their collapse or their death, but they could well have been placed in harm's way. And of those, how many survived and how many died? Three of those babies died and four of them uh, survived. And I will be liaising with Cheshire Police as soon as possible to bring those cases uh, to their attention. In addition to that, I looked at another 48 cases. This is after she'd been arrested, mm-hmm. where there were concerns. This goes back to 2012, but most of these cases date back to 2014. And I found several cases that are highly suspicious, where an endotracheal tube, which is a tube you place in the baby's throat when they need breathing support, had been displaced, had come out. Now, these tubes can come out accidentally, but for so many to come out, is very, very unusual. So I think one needs to look at those going back at least to June 2014, which is 12 months prior to the first fatality. And I suspect that these tubes were displaced intentionally. How many babies do you think that is then? I think that several of them, probably eight, nine or ten of them, were placed in harm's way. There are possibly another one or two insulin poisonings which we will never be able to prove because the insulin value is not available. Of one thing I think we can be reasonably sure, Lucy Letby did not turn up to work one day and decide to inject a baby uh, with air into their bloodstream. So I think the modus operandi evolved over a period of time and I think that prior to the air embolus, the air being injected into the circulation, I think that um, tube displacement was probably something that she did. You know, this is something you've done for many years, but I wonder just the gravity of this. What what has that left you with in terms of your reflections? It's quite shattering, actually. It's, It's quite devastating because basically what happened in this case is that the babies were let down by every organisation who had a duty of care to them. The medics were slow to recognise that these babies were put in harm's way. I think the coroner should have done a few things differently. The management uh, approach is absolutely shocking. It has left a very bad taste, really, because you can imagine now parents not trusting doctors and nurses Mm. when their babies are in neonatal units. And 
there have to be changes that allow a link between responsibility and authority. The same applies to families. The families have no easy access to an independent opinion. Community health councils were abolished yeah. over 10 years ago. They were able to ask questions. Whatever the complaints, the problems with what was happening at Chester, which will all hopefully hopefully be aired in what's now a public inquiry led by a judge, it's a killer on a ward. That's not something even you would come across very often in your career. I still find it difficult to imagine any member of staff intentionally harming a, a patient. You know, it is it is so completely outside one's mindset. I don't think I've ever known of such an event, to be frank with you. We've taken up so much of your time and we've been in your beautiful home for hours. <laughs> thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, we really you so appreciate much, it. Dr. Evans, thank you. You're very welcome. The figure's slightly confusing, but essentially what he was saying is that there's seven babies that weren't featured in the trial that were in his original tranche of cases that he reviewed. Three of those died and four of those survived. And he said, you know, so he's concerned that, you know, they were harmed, potentially killed and harmed by Lucy Letby. He also talked about up to another 11 babies up to 10 of which he said could have had their breathing tubes interfered with and another, at least one more, that he thought may potentially have been poisoned with insulin. They're looking at many, 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 many cases and it's very, very likely whichever ones, as an expert witness in this trial, he has highlighted will be part of of the ones that that they are going to look at anyway. Well, we know that they're looking at the medical notes of 4,000 babies that were admitted to the neonatal units of the Countess and of Liverpool Women's Hospital. And we know that Cheshire Police haven't ruled out any potential charges down the line that Lucy Letby might be charged with further offences. And obviously, if that happens, we'll bring you news of that on the podcast. So that's it for episode 63. And it's really likely that next Monday will be our final episode of the podcast for a while. We'll obviously bring you more episodes as and when there's anything to say or when there's any updates to bring to you relating to the case. We'll be back, of course, for the public inquiry and we'll be back as well to let you know of anything that happens that we become aware of going forward to bring you all the details of that. But we plan to sign off on Monday with a special episode, which is hopefully going to be directed by you and your questions about the case. So we've had loads of questions in already, many of them which we were unable to answer for legal reasons during the trial. But now it's over, we thought we'd try and address some of those questions for you. So if there's anything that's been bugging you or you want to ask us, please send us an email or a voice note with your question to the trial of Lucy Letby at gmail.com. You can, of course, listen back to earlier episodes from the podcast or catch more of our post-verdict episodes on Mail Plus or wherever you usually get your podcasts. You can also give us a rating and share the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or follow me at Radio Caroline or Liz at Liz Hull. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>